This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to the Media Rumble Sessions. Thank you, Benjamin, Sheena and Deborah for making the time. Uh, I would like to tell you that every year whenever Media Rumble happen, we, happens, we always have one session on revenue models and the changing revenue models, predominantly reader-supported, whether you call it subscription or membership. And every year the audience must be sick of having me host it but I have selfish reasons because there's much I want to learn. News Laundry started off with a mission in 2012 that we will not have any ads and we've stuck to that. And we've learned from experts such as you, so I hope to do that uh, in this session too. So thank you all. Uh, so Benjamin, uh, Dr. Toff, what would you prefer? Uh, since you- Benjamin's are, fine. Benjamin. Uh, other than your int- uh, introduction that, that um, my friend and colleague uh, gave, uh, <coughs> Suraj, you also are actually the one of the um, people behind a recent study, which I actually have read uh, some of. So I'd like to kick off on that. I'd like to encourage all our uh, listeners and viewers. Uh, there's a Reuters Institute and University of Oxford study. It's listening to what trust in news means to users. It's a qualitative evidence from four countries and uh, a team uh, which Benjamin has been a part of, and I'm guessing led, has come up with this 50-page report. Uh, now, just give us the main findings. Of course, I would encourage everyone to read the full report. I'm sure there'll be lots of insights into it. But what have you found from your research? And is there huge differences in different countries and audiences to how they react to news? Great. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so um, that report is part of a larger project, actually, um, which we call the Trust in News Project. And um, we are looking at uh, attitudes towards news organizations and, and journalism more generally across uh, India, the US, the UK, and Brazil. And one of the reasons we're trying to do that is to, to you know, often trust in news is, is, has been studied in particular markets, many times the US. Um, and so trying to get a broader sense of how the media environment, the political environment, how these different factors play in. So that particular report, um, you know, one of the main takeaways had to do with, um, you know, one of the things we found when we talked to people one-on-one about um, the way that they think about trust uh, rather than the way that we as researchers or, or um, journalists and practitioners tend to think about it, it, it's somewhat distinct from um, the kind of focus on journalism practices as being sort of the most important thing that people are, are weighing in their minds when they're differentiating between sources and rather you know, they're looking at more uh, sort of obvious observable things about a news organization, like, you know, uh, both uh, how familiar it is or how used to it is, whether they grew up with the brand um, and and that sense of familiarity, which has a a really important role to play, um, as well as, um, you know, and this was actually particularly the case in India, um, its appearance. Um, and so sort of how professional it looks, how put together it looks, those kinds of things, which, you know, if you think about the way that people are coming across news increasingly these days online, it could be, you know, a matter of a fraction of a second in their, um, in their social media feeds, they, they don't have as much information to go off of when, when deciding what news to trust. And so, you know, the big takeaway, I think, from, from that report, and this is, we've since done some survey research as well, um, in all four countries, which um, have also pointed us in this direction, that um, you know people need uh, they work with heuristics to, to sort of shortcuts to make sense of what they're encountering, and uh, and a lot there's a significant portion of the public for whom 
Um, they don't have a lot of information about the sources that they're engaging with. And so they, they have a really hard time actually differentiating between, you know, why should I trust this news brand versus another one? And so trying to find ways in which um, individual brands, individual organizations can really stand out from one another and communicate in that kind of environment. I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges. Uh, so there were no significant differences from your findings from country to country, like India was similar to, the, to Brazil and other markets. That's one question. The second one being, uh, explain the, the, the kind of paradox between a dissatisfaction with news and a distrust in news in general, yet your findings found that a large majority trusted legacy brands, something that they were familiar with growing up with. So that kind of you know, is in conflict with each other. How, how, how did your uh, research team yeah. figure this out? So uh, on the first question, there were there were some significant differences. And in that particular report, we focused more on the similarities because they were pretty striking across the four countries, despite very different media environments. Um, some of the differences are a little easier to, to make sense of in the survey work that we've done. So we just published uh, earlier this month uh, a second report that that um, details those survey based findings um, and we do find uh, there you know in, in India the, the level of trust is significantly higher than um, in the US and UK and, and Brazil um, actually 38 percent um, of respondents in India um, said that, that they completely trusted the information that is just the most extreme category um, which was a much larger percentage than, than in other countries um, in that in, in India as well, you know, uh, the the largest um, we, we saw the largest percentage of respondents who said they trusted all 15 different individual news brands that we asked about, um, which was also much higher. Um, and we saw that people in India said they trusted news on Google more than any individual brand that, that we asked about in the country. Um, and the percent who did not trust news on WhatsApp was also higher than, than any uh, individual brand. So there's a lot of polarization in terms of um, the way that people think about uh, the, the sources they're encountering. And we um, that's one of the things we try to do in that report is separate out, you know, not just thinking about low and high trust, but the people who are sort of selectively trusting sources and the way that they go about making those decisions from the people who are sort of more generally untrusting. Um, and we really find that, you know, a lot of those people who are untrusting, and this is true across all four countries, they tend to be more indifferent towards news. They have less experience conversing or knowing journalists. They know less about the way journalism works. Um, and they're less interested in news. And, and, and that group, uh, you know, I think is, is both harder to reach for news organizations because they, they sort of more generally are, are less interested. Um, but they're also different from that kind of vocal set of critics who are um, very critical of the news, uh, but, but who actually have often specific brands of news that they do trust. Um, and so that's, I think, that gets into that, so that, that paradox where we, we tend to think about there being a lot of distrust in news, but distrust is somewhat different from a lack of trust, which we think is more about a lack of familiarity, a lack of um, you know, experience getting to know an organization. Uh, thanks, Benjamin. Uh, so, Deborah, I mean, one thing that, you know, always surprises me is that data findings often go against your conventional understanding of a market. For example, it seems that Indians are less distrustful of the news than, uh, you know, the contemporaries in the West, yet convention says that it's more difficult to get Indians to pay for news, even the ones who can afford it. So what has your experience been in, uh, you know, Malaysia? And I will just um, also introduce you as the member uh, you're the uh, member engagement coordinator for new 
narrative i hope i pronounced that correctly which is a news yes. uh, portal which actually i have open in front of me right now and your support page has you know a plan for uh, you know institutional membership you have gift subscription you have sponsor memberships and you have a donate basket separately like you can also donate uh, so what have your experiences been with getting people to pay for news because yours is like news laundry is also ad free and how much do you rely on data because news laundry we've always relied on instinct and we've kind of blumbered along but as we become bigger i think you will have to rely more and more on data because when you're like 10 people strong you can just go on instinct and then 20 30 40 then what has that been for you data instinct experience in malaysia more distrustful less how hard is it to get those people to pay absolutely um yeah so new narrative is actually a regional um outlet so we are not based in we do have a, a kl office but in malaysia but we are we we publish news from around southeast asia um and you know so so we have members from singapore malaysia um the us uk and you know we take our yeah our members are from from all across the world basically and we actually our founders two of our founders were uh, three of our founders sorry three of our founders were from singapore so initially a lot of our membership um was singaporean and and that's still true and we're trying to diversify out of that and we've seen an increasing number of malaysians sign up um this year in particular um and yeah i mean i think we southeast asia is maybe a, a more challenging market to get people to pay for news especially outside of singapore singapore has singaporeans have a relatively good purchasing power but you know and then following from singapore malaysia but then you know it becomes more challenging to get people to sign up in indonesia and thailand um cambodia and i i don't think we have any members in laos so yeah you know it, it, it when purchasing power it becomes more limited then you know it gets harder to get people to pay for news especially at the tier of news that we are offering membership which is the lowest tier is 52 US dollars a year or 1 US dollar a week but that is very expensive in some countries in southeast asia um and to answer your question i think that's related to data i think similarly we at new narrative were kind of going off of instinct a lot of the time um and then last year you know i'm the membership engagement manager and so i got some training from an audience research consultant and that's really been very valuable for me and for the organization as a whole in understanding our audience more and um it's really helped us to grow so surveying your audience is you know if i have any piece of advice to anybody starting out a media company anywhere in the world it's to really talk to your audience um do a lot of audience research and don't make decisions until you have some data from your audience so um yeah i i regularly do audience research i did some at the beginning of the year in um april and i did that right before we launched a membership drive in may and it, it that was very invaluable so we have a few different tiers of membership we have 52 which is the lowest um 102 302 and then the most expensive tier is 552 and we don't offer more perks at the higher um tiers of membership so all members get the same privileges at 
all the tiers. It doesn't matter if you're paying 52 or 552, you get the same product. And that, that was like an equity thing for us. Um, and, you know, so obviously, if you've, you've tried to sell anything online, people would generally pay for the lowest, you know, costing product. So most people were signed up at 52 US dollars a year. Um, but when I talked to our audience earlier this year, and I said, you know, what would make you sign up at a higher tier? Um, or what do you think would make people sign up at the higher tiers? And a few people said, you know, I think if you told me that signing up at 102 US dollars would create more access to new narratives to people who couldn't afford it, then I would do that. Um, and some people said like, um, you know, if, if, if I signed up at 302 US dollars a year, that would mean that more people could come on staff full time, I would do that. So they wanted to know that their higher um, buy-in to the organization would mean tangibly that you know, more people got access to our content or that, you know, more team members could be paid more equitably. So, that, and that, that's a reflection of the kind of audience we have, which is more altruistic. And so that's what we said. I mean, if you, if you sign up at 102, you create access for one other person. Um, when you sign up at, for 302, you create access for five people and on and on. And that was a very, very successful membership drive for us. We saw people on average signing up at 80 US dollars. Um, so, you know, I mean, we had more memberships at 102 um, and 302. Our higher tiers, all our higher tiers grew by about 50% this year because of this push that the higher that you sign up, the more access you're creating for people who can't um, afford one. And we've also introduced, as you pointed out, um, sponsored memberships. So that is where you can purchase a membership for somebody who can't afford one. So anybody who can't afford a new narrative membership can write into us and we'll send them a form and they fill it out and they can have a membership that somebody else has purchased so that they can have access. And is that fairly successful, that, that plan of yours? Yeah, I mean, it has been. I think um, in the last week or so, we've had, um, I believe it's about seven people, uh, seven sponsored memberships have been created. Um, and that's kind of related to, um, you know, earlier you made a joke about, um, you know, how I was trained as a fiction writer and, you know, I could keep making money if I, uh, in, in news, if I stuck to, to fiction writing. Um, and I said, I joked back, I said, you know, well, that's what the Singapore government thinks. Um, and, and that's because uh, the Singapore government has not been very friendly to new narrative. Uh, we have come of, we've run afoul of the prevention of false acts and uh, falsehood, online falsehoods and manipulation act uh, a few times. And um, they've just tabled a new foreign interference countermeasures bill, um, which we are, you know, potentially going to be affected by. And I think, you know, as a response to the, the, the tabling of this bill, um, we've had an influx of people buying sponsored memberships. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we, we've definitely seen a lot of success with the sponsored membership. We've seen a huge success in people buying at higher tiers. So clearly, um the in your case and that similar news laundry the appeal is more to the spirit of journalism can only remain alive if you pay for it so you pay for others as well which is what we do whereas i mean in india there there are, you know products like the ken and the morning context which have a large fintech private equity audience which do like in-depth stories which are in the fintech tech space 
Uh, and that, I guess, is more they're paying for the product rather than for the spirit of paying for others. Now, one of the workshops that I attended, which was, you know, experts from around the world, some of the best, uh, the, the learning that they gave me was that it's easier to get someone who's come at tier one to get him to pay more or her. So if someone's coming for 1000 rupees and you have a higher tier, it's much easier to get someone who's already into in your, uh, you know, uh, subscription or membership model to pay more rather than get more people to pay. Now, the data around the world suggests that's true, but I just thought that was a bit unfair that you just keep milking the one person who was nice enough to pay you 10 and then take 20 and then 30. Do you, uh, but th that, that is what data tells us. Do you actually follow that advice, which, um, you know, is given to you or do you try to get more and more people convinced that you should pay no matter how little? I think we we definitely know so that I mean it's a numbers game. We definitely need to have more members, and we have a number of like how many members we need to be to be a hundred percent member funded. We're not there yet. We're about thirty percent member funded, which is um, do, which for those who don't know that that's doing quite well for the industry standard. Um, uh, there are outliers who have eighty percent. I don't think there's anybody and, you know, maybe the other panelists can correct me um, if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's anybody who's 100% um, member funded or if there is, it's very, very rare. Um, you know, 30% is about like the standard for what's doing well. Um, so we know that we need more members, but um, you're right in that it we did see when we, we introduced this concept that paying at a higher tier is uh will will allow access to more people we did see people convert from 52 to 102 um or and sometimes even the highest level we had uh, one member go from 52 to 552 so you know it definitely works um but you know as i said we were seeing new members sign up at 102 and sometimes even 302 so um it, it the for our particular audience um, who have this this kind of value of altruism, uh, this this pitch that you can create access to our content um, was very compelling. Great, thanks, Deborah. Um, uh, now, Sheena, uh, just one thing, Deborah. Uh, News Laundry uh, makes all its money. I mean, we although we do have you know events such as this, but um, as of this year, um, we have had you know. Uh, month on month, uh, all our costs can be taken care of by subscriptions. But then again, we started 10 years ago. It's taken 10 years to get to this point. It, it hasn't been uh, two years. But, uh, you know, Sheena, uh, I, we had on Media Rumble four years ago, the founder of Dare Correspondent, uh, Rob. I, I don't know whether you've met him or, you know, I've been able to chat with him. Uh, so, so Rob Winberg, I think, is how he pronounces his surname. So at the Media Rumble, he had said that you know, they raised a million US dollars. I think they were a bunch of journalists and they started and they were profitable from day one. Sustainability wasn't a problem. In fact, the US version of the correspondent, um, Trevor Noah was one of the people who funded it and they tried it there, it wasn't so successful. And when he was here, you know, he was asked questions like, what was your target audience? What is the strategy? He was like, there wasn't target audience, there was no strategy. We were a bunch of journalists. We said, we need money to journalism, people gave it. So the American journalist said, easy to do in Norway not so easy to do in the US and definitely not in India. So this behavior of reader support, Google has all the data in the world. You are the modern age gods. So give us some wisdom so that we can be sustainable 
and tomorrow maybe snatch some of the audience from you uh, how 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 does that audience behavior change in different parts what does your data tell you um, first of all, um, hi everyone. <laughs> Super interesting already to hear what Benjamin and Deborah had to say. Um, look, by no means are we either digital gods or are we claiming to know um, how uh, reader revenue works or how it's evolving. But to your point, we are working actively within the news ecosystem, uh, both through our research as well. Um, by no means is it as ex uh, exhaustive as the Reuters Institute, um, but we every year also work closely with online readers to identify what are some of the trends that are defining reader revenue. In addition to that, we've been launching subscription labs across the globe uh, in LATAM in North America to truly understand what is the maturity scale for reader revenue looks like and how can we how can different tactics support reader revenue for news organizations and the way we're thinking about it is sort of stepping away um you know we've talked about trust as a signal to identify how much users are going to pay for we you've spoken uh, essentially about um you know the the value uh, that the journalist as a brand brings to the organization and then users are are deeply connected to the journalist therefore they're ready to donate and then deborah has highlighted how building sort of a community around what the organization stands for, building a membership model and talking, uh, communicating to uh, the audience and its understanding of what the value proposition the brand drives um, can also drive revenue. So I think how we're thinking about is like really encouraging uh, both new businesses or new news organizations launching subscription versus also legacy businesses uh, converting into digital subscription is to kind of think about subscriptions in three different ways. One is looking at the macro level instead of identifying within your country, what are some of the trends that are identifying the subscription economy? What is the internet penetration? What is the um, you know, GDP look like? Um, how uh, you know, are payment gateways available? Are there actually credit cards available to pay or not? Because this finally identifies like how do you make that seamless experience um, uh, possible on your uh, website? The second is kind of looking at micro trends. So, the competitive landscape, the willingness to pay, and therein trust becomes uh, a very significant part of like, do users trust um, news uh, or not? And are they willing to pay? And some of the trends that we're seeing is really interesting. I'll talk uh, illustrated with one example in Asia Pacific. If you look at digital penetration, markets like Japan, markets like Australia are more likely, are, are digitally um, savvy and therefore um, you expect more digital subscriptions to be present in the market. That's untrue. Actually, you're seeing markets like India and Indonesia where trust, as uh, I think Benjamin also alluded to it, is higher. And therefore the user's willingness to pay is actually higher. Other than you said, it's really hard for, I think it is a belief that Indian users, it's really hard uh, to get them to pay. But uh, so the research we did this year, um, for our online users in India, uh, both willingness to pay is really high in, Indian, in India and Indonesia uh, compared to some of the other Asia markets. Um, and uh, one out of five readers um, in India um, have subscribed to digital subscriptions. And so you're looking at almost 21% of our total pool in India has subscribed and 21% are looking to subscribe. And I think that's 
probably also because of the pandemic and users looking for more reliable information. And so they're looking at legacy newspapers um, and, and subscribing to them to get more trusted information. I'm sorry to cut in, Sheena, you can continue. Uh, you said 21% uh, who've subscribed to news or to any content. Like, does that include Netflix, etc., or just news? Just news. Um, oh, so they put okay. uh, paid news sources in India, and uh, 27% are planning um, to subscribe. So that's a large pool within the online readership that's looking to subscribe. And I think that's also because um, you know of the brands that are existing um, that are digitally native. Whether you look at a Ken or a Quint or the Print or News Laundry, for that matter, I think um, the the data suggests otherwise that news um, readers are becoming more and more cognizant of the kind of news they affiliate with and and therefore also ready to pay and i think that's where the last part of like the framework that we encourage news organizations to think about is their brand. What does their brand stand for? Are they doing audience research? Of course, considering macro and micro trends are really important, but are they really um, identifying um, what does their mission statement? And like you said, like News Laundry stands for ad-free experience. The CAN stands to deliver value to business audiences or um, audiences that are looking for business news. The SCMP wants to be the voice of Asia and the voice of um, you know, China to the world. As and when you identify those mission statements, are you delivering that to your subscribers in a seamless fashion? Are you actually continuing to reiterate that mission statement and then build a subscription model on top of it? Of course, a lot of audience research goes into it, a lot of surveys, focus groups, and constantly asking, what would you be ready to pay for is critical. And I think we're really encouraging um, organizations to think more broadly about subscriptions than going to the last mile tactic and, and, and thinking about and one more thing, I think uh, we talked a little bit about our um, uh, asking already subscribed users to pay for uh, to pay more. I think um, uh, we ran a subscription lab with eight partners in uh, Asia Pacific, and that's kind of the recommendation we made to them as well, that you need to not just think about um, uh, the already converted users, therefore they're in the pool, but actually think about how you can increase the value added benefits, whether it's access to uh, events, whether you're giving personalized newsletters, uh, and therefore think about how can you increase uh, not just um, you know give them offers, but also increase the pricing. And that can be done by creating a value added men members benefit program. You can also think about um, creating more uh, recurring payments, um, you know, instead of like giving offers that are just three months or six months, you can think about 24 months offers. And that's also really working for, say, a partner like Quint. The moment they changed their um, subscription uh, offering to just uh, from six months to about 12 months, they saw a significant increase in the total value or a lifetime value or they are pool that the user could drive. And therefore, they're it's easier to then also forecast for sustainability. So um, I think we're seeing a lot of tactics, but once again, it is dependent on how clear you are about who your audience is, what your brand stands for, and are you uh, doing employing all the tactics that you can through your website, through your newsletters, and through your membership program to deliver to that value for your audiences. Right. So um, before I go back to Benjamin, one is you said that 21 or 27 percent people are still looking to subscribe to news. They haven't yet. So what do we have to do to get that database from you is to have to hack into the Google system. Do you have that phone numbers, email IDs? How, how do I get these people's 
names and numbers and email IDs. Is is there a bidding process? Oh no, no chance. Okay, just kidding. But but I I will say uh, our strategy, at least mine, has been since we started. I shame my audience. Uh, I use the Hindi word mufat khor, which means freeloaders. Uh, that uh, all of you listening to our content, because some of our content is behind the wall, most is not. So I said all of you who are able to afford it and are earning well and are buying a packet of cigarettes a day or buying a drink in the evening, uh, a fraction of your bad habits can fund news to make uh, democracy healthier. And apparently, shaming people works. Uh, so I that's that's a strategy I deploy. Just. Let you know. So Benjamin, I was just going to ask you, carrot or stick. So either one. <laughs> I just use shame that uh, you know you can pay for alcohol and cigarettes, but not for news. Shame on you. Uh, so I'm going to start questions in ten minutes. But Benjamin, you've heard you know um, the Google, the big picture, someone who's running a website with a fair amount of success. What tips would you have for me and others like me and Deborah? From the kind of consumer behavior that you've seen, because while you you put this report together, I'm sure you learned so much more that hasn't made it to the report, and that kind of advice and insights to audience would be invaluable. Yeah, I mean, as I was listening to um, to both Deborah and Sheena, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was how. Um, you know, both the importance of communicating uh, sort of what your brand is about, what that identity that that makes you distinct from the your your various competitors in the very very vast marketplace of of news organizations that that users might be encountering, um, but not just in terms of like making sure you have a very clear and coherent mission statement, but communicating that. Um, in every opportunity you have to, to be in front of those users. So, um, and, and sometimes that can be really tough because, you know, I think there's often a, a tendency for news organizations to want to get, you know, in front of as many people as possible to, to reach a, a wider audience. But sometimes the things that reach wider audiences don't necessarily reflect well on that brand identity. So there's a lot of viral content that maybe not actually be core to what your news organization does. And for many users, if that if that's what they're seeing when they're coming in contact with you, that's that's often the way that they're going to then develop a sense of what that mission statement and what that organization is about. Um, and so there's often, a, a, I think, a real disconnect or challenge that these organizations face. In they may have some idea of you know what they believe in, what what sets them apart from. Uh, other organizations, what that value proposition is, but communicating that in a way where people may only be seeing you for very fleeting moments uh, or, you know, links being shared between people um, or in their feeds and, and, you know, how people are going to then form assumptions about what your brand is, uh, is, you know, tricky. And so it's easier to get those people who are super engaged, who are actually clicking through and reading your content and maybe getting more familiar with it. Um, which I think makes a lot of sense then why you could sort of uh, focus on, um, you know, trying to convert those people into to paying even more. Um, but to reach a wider audience, I think you have to be somewhat creative about how you um, build not just, you know, awareness of who your brand is, but but a real sense of your identity and how it's distinct from others. Right. Thanks, Benjamin. Uh, and I would highly recommend everybody read that report. I've read some and uh, I'm sure there's way more learning than that I can do once I've read the whole thing. Deborah, when you um, actually went on this mission and clearly you're positioning it as a why paying for news is important and it's it's an it's an ad free platform. And like you've said that policy also impacts how how well it doesn't how well it doesn't. 
what are the kind of benefits that you're seeing from like you said you really uh, speak with your audience to to make any policy or strategy shift you you don't do it on instinct anymore because that's very valuable can you give us an idea of what are the kind what's the kind of feedback you get why do people pay what prompts them to pay and um, have you tried anything like we have that if you can get former subscribers to pay you know like a ponzi scheme which is good at heart that get former people to pay for news because and then we'll give you one month free have you tried that are people who value the importance of news good brand ambassadors are they effective are they committed have you tried anything along those lines um we we definitely so last year we we did a member campaign we had you know individual members talk about why they supported us and and it was like a, a variety of things um we find that our members and supporters support us because of our values um we have a manifesto on our website and you know we we really prioritize transparency so you can read our financial reports on the website um and you can you know uh, we we are very we we have open meetings where members can come and ask us any question they like um i send a newsletter out every thursday and i always regularly say if you have feedback please you know you can reply to this email and and we'll get it so so members really prize that they really like that we are um transparent that we we have a political point of view which we don't try to hide we say that you know these are our values we are for human rights so that's our bias but we'll always use evidence to back up our articles and and our content so um you know yeah we're not shy about like revealing who is funding us how we're funded and and that i think is the biggest draw for a lot of people and in feedback that comes up regularly that people really like the amount of transparency that we have and when we fundraise um we clearly indicate where the money's going to like this much is going to staff salary this much is going to contributor fees this much is going towards um you know website hosting whatever it is so people really like that kind of transparency from us and um yeah that's one of the 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 things that comes up very regularly when i do audience feedback and um you know another thing again you know we we were founded in singapore but we're not a singaporean uh news organization uh we do we do publish news out of singapore um you know in in singapore there isn't a lot of space for alternative views outside of the uh government linked uh news outlets so you know people are actually very hungry in singapore for alternative viewpoints and we provide one so and and we gave we give space to to like opposition politicians and that kind of thing so i mean in in singapore we um occupy a kind of a niche area though um yeah as i mentioned we there are a few laws in singapore that are not very media friendly and um they're encroaching on our um ability to get more members i think in in singapore so yeah i my my sister lives in singapore for the last 20 years and her bag was stolen one day she made it to the front page so i was like really that's 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 what makes the front page so uh, uh, but uh, sheena you know i saw pure research a few years ago and i'll start taking questions aditi asavari ashutosh i see your questions i'll quickly go to sheena sheena if you could just uh, keep this brief so we can take more audience questions uh, i read a pure research uh, a, a couple of years ago which uh, spoke about this was at peak uh, you know trump when media was really polarized Uh, which kind of showed that uh, people who identified as liberal 
tended to have a wider access of news consumption than conservative who had a narrower access of news consumption. And the tendency of people who identify themselves as liberal to pay for news was more than people who identify themselves as conservative. Now, and this is a question we get asked a lot, that since you are positioning subscriber-driven news as less compromised because you aren't depending on large corporations and clickbaits and stuff, is there not an inevitability to cater to an audience who will pay? Does your data have anything on this? The, I mean, is there kind of an overlap? And, and Benjamin, if you want to come in on this, feel free to. Um, uh, you know, once China's done, that political ideology and and likelihood to pay for news is is there any correlation, causation, anything? I think Benjamin's definitely more qualified to talk about it, both through his paper on trust and like what are what are the how does politics uh, play a role in what you pay for or not? But some of the signals that we're seeing that users who are already paying for news, um, uh, one from news uh, organizations is that um, more than uh, sort of political affiliations, they actually want more factual centered, reliable news. Number two, they want like specialized and niche content. And thirdly, they want to feel like the content is exclusive, which is very similar to any kind of subscription platform uh, besides the news industry as well. Uh, on the opposite spectrum, folks who are considering to pay and why they don't pay for news um, are, are folks who, think, who uh, believe that there's too much fake news of false information and political inf politically driven information available, even in markets like Japan, which is one of the reasons they don't pay for news. Um, and uh, they are also very much looking for accurate and reliable information, but they don't pay for news because they, uh, they believe that the content is too politicized. So I don't know if it necessarily directly answers the question that you've asked, but I think um, those are some of the top reasons that we're seeing across Asia Pacific on users either paying for news or wanting to pay for news. Um, you know, mostly from our most recent report, which which used survey data, so we have a better sense of, sort of representative uh, samples in each country. And, and it is something we find in all four countries that we look at, that there is quite a bit of polarization along uh, partisan or, or political lines. Um, the U.S. is particularly extreme, much more so than, than either of the other three countries. Um, but, you know, but in India as well, we do find, um, you know, it's particularly pronounced in terms of uh, whether people have favorable attitudes towards Modi. 80% um, of people who are in the generally trusting category towards news, so they trust above average number of, of the 15 brands that we asked about, um, are um, uh, have had favorable attitudes towards Modi, whereas it's only about 50% of people in that generally untrusting category have favorable attitudes towards Modi. And so, um, you know, so basically, you are seeing this this tendency for people to divide along uh, political lines in India, and we see that in in um, Brazil and the UK as well. All right, thanks, Benjamin. <clears throat> now uh, I'll just uh, read the question out. Uh, whoever wants to take it, just you know, say I'll take that one. Whoever's you know best qualified or you know thinks they have an answer uh, for that, that could benefit our audience or provide some value. Aditi says, "Is there a comprehensive methodology built around actual user research?" Comprehensive, okay. In a subscription model, wouldn't it be vital to ensure that the value proposition of the said subscription is clearly articulated to the potential user apart from the obvious ones? Um, Benjamin, you want to take that? 
I mean, I think, yeah. So, you know, we, we have the benefit of being an independent research institution. Um, and so uh, it has the benefit in the sense that we can look broadly at this in the methods that we're using or trying to get, you know, representative samples uh, through surveys or, or looking across uh, audiences in a more general way. I think a lot of news organizations, you know, they're often focused on the audience data that they have access to, which has to do with their own uh, subscribers or, or their own members. And have a harder time getting access to um, all the people that they're not reaching. Um, and so, and I think there's some danger there in terms of the, the thinking about the rigor of the methods. If you're making assumptions about uh, the people that you're not reaching without uh, reaching those people to, to, to question them, interview them and understand their perspective, which may be very different from the people who are actually already paying, already subscribing to you. All right, um, Sheena, uh, Deborah, you wanna come in on that before I move to the next questions? You wanna add anything to that? Sure. I think sorry, go ahead, Deborah. Oh, um, I would just, I mean, I don't know about comprehensive methodology. I think it'll depend on your team and your resources. Um, the way we do it is that we put out a call to do video calls with people. Um, and we try to do at least 10 video calls with people when we do audience research. And, you know, we go in with this, a particular objective. So at the earlier this year was what would get people to sign up at a higher tier. And then based on those video calls, we create a survey where we give people options and we release that to a wider segment of our audience. And um, that, yeah, that's basically it. That's how we do audience research. And that alone is quite, you know, time uh, intensive. And, and that's, uh, you know, uh, about what we can do every quarter. So that's how we do it. Yeah, Deborah. Just, um, sorry, just quickly, I think um, uh, we have actually a very extensive reader revenue playbook that we've written as part of the digital growth program. I can share the link with the team um, and you can share it with the audience after. Uh, but the two ways that we're encouraging a lot of this user research um, to happen is, as Deborah's alluded to, looking at your, your core audience and doing surveys and focus groups. But one of the other ways that you can also understand um, audience behaviors and specifically on how they're performing on your website is through News Consumer Insights. Uh, it's a free tool. So if you have Google Analytics, um, you can use this tool anytime. Uh, and it's a visualization tool that will help you understand where are your um, or how can you segment your audience from their recency, frequency, and page views? Um, so you can look at casual versus brand lovers and fanatics who are coming more than 15 times on your site to casual uh, users who are coming less than one time over the past 30 days, and then see what are some of the behaviors that they are uh, representing from time spent on site to how much um, you know page views they're driving. And that can be a data-informed way to um, you know contribute or um, supplement to your audience focus group research. So I think these are tools that are readily available to also use um, anytime for any publication that's interesting. All right, thanks, Sheena. Now, Asavari says, uh, with the shift of news to digital, how do digital platforms compete for a chunk with legacy media moving to digital platforms as well? So, uh, Deborah, I guess since you've been actively doing that, before a new narrative, did you hold this position of, of uh, engagement, uh, membership engagement with any other news organization or you? No, I, I came into this role without any prior experience. And, and you know, I, I felt for a long time like I was just like, you know, figuring out what to do. And and really, my job in me, in the media landscape is about three years old, which is how long I've had it. So in, in back in 2018, it's about when people started talking about the need for membership engagement. Um, 
and and having that role in a media organization um sorry what was the question again uh, how do they compete with legacy media i mean right. I, I, I can just give you a, a yeah. bit, uh, from uh, you know maria ressa from the philippines yes uh, so maria has been on the media rumble uh, i think 2018 she was there at the media rumble and i had a fantastic conversation with her after the session and she said for Apple, it was relatively easy because legacy media was not doing their job. So her growth was spectacular and organic, but that was like five, six years ago. I'm sure today there are too many people in that space. Well, what, what are you doing to compete with legacy and what are the, what are the advantages of not being legacy and what are the disadvantages? Well, we are doing new narrative does long form in Southeast Asia, which is, you know, um, not many local uh, newsrooms in Southeast Asia do long form. So that is already one way in which we are setting ourselves apart. And most international media also don't cover um, Southeast Asia in long form. And another advantage we have is that our contributors are, you know, we, we are against parachute journalism, basically. And, that, and then we really emphasize that our contributors, if they're not Southeast Asian, they've been based in the region for a long time. So we, we really don't um, ever try and send a correspondent into a place they've never been to for a few weeks or a month or whatever and report. Um, so I think those are a couple of ways. We try and bring as much local nuance and we really do report, um, I would say, very locally specific stories from Southeast Asia. So, you know, we, we, we get stories from outside the capital cities of the different countries where we, we have um, media, uh, uh, we publish stories from. So yeah, I would say that's a main difference. And Southeast Asia is a great place for, for, for doing that kind of reporting because not a lot of people are doing it. Sheena, Benjamin, you have anything to add to that? I'll just quickly add two things. I think when you're um, starting on the journey of launching digital subscriptions, I think it's a little bit of a blank slate both for legacy organizations as well as digital natives um, because you have to start right at the drawing board and say, okay, what is your audience? Which communities you serve? The advantage that digital natives have, I think, is just um, the fact that they're a lot more nimbler as an organization, so it's faster to move. Um, you know, you don't have to go through a lot of the permission and hierarchy. And I think secondly, um, I think with digital natives as well, you have more different find communities and value propositions. So you'll see a lot more um, clear um, sort of what audiences they're serving and what communities they're serving as Deborah has alluded to as well. So I think, um, I don't necessarily, um, you know, who's better, but I think there are certain advantages of being digitally native and, and smaller in your scale to be able to, you know, keep up with the trends. Thanks, Sheena. Um, there's one more question, but Ashutosh, um, you asked, is it really not possible to report and bring news without interference on ad-driven model? Is this a recent phenomenon that's always been there. Ashutosh, I've done a one-hour conversation with Avlok Langer on Scoop Whoop Unscripted on this. We've really gone deep into it. So could I please request you to check that out? It's on Scoop Whoop Unscripted with Avlok Langer and me. There's a conversation and we've really discussed this in, in depth. And I'm out of time. So thank you so much, Benjamin, Sheena, Deborah. This has been, as usual, uh, a learning for me. And I shall go through the entire report and I will just tell our audience again. It's a Reuters Institute of Politics uh, it's, uh, on their website, listening to what trust in news means to users, qualitative evidence from four countries. And to our audience, thank you for watching. Thank you for supporting the Media Rumble. And I just have one more message, which I always give when I get a chance and I have a captive audience. When the public pays, the public is served. When advertisers pay, 
advertisers served. So if you are dissatisfied with the news, you can do two things. You can whine about it on social media in the comment section of this, or you could go to the news platform of your choice who you trust and pay yourself. One of those methods will actually have a positive impact. If you're smart enough to know which one that is, you will know what to do. Uh, with that note, I again thank our audience and our wonderful panelists. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.